Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Becky Castle Miller, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about, well, all about emotions, I guess, uh, denying and embracing them. I'm really excited to jump into this conversation. I love talking about this stuff. My kids, though, be like, oh, here mom goes again talking about emotions. Yeah, well, they're going to thank you. They're going to thank you later when when they have skills for identifying and regulating them. So your background is you have a master's in New Testament You studied with Scott McKnight. A lot of listeners Mm -hmm. are going to be familiar with his work. You served on pastoral staff in the Netherlands for eight years at a church, and now you are applying for PhD programs to continue your work on emotions in the New Testament. And I told you just before we started, I'm excited about that kind of biblical angle because, you know, I'm not known for my exegesis or my... uh, (laughs) <laughs> even my devotional reading of the Bible, I'm known for kind of taking things straight to psychological terminology. I'm excited to get this kind of wrinkle on things. I'm really interested in the intersection of neuroscience with New Testament studies. And that's what I delved into in my master's thesis. And I, I got to the end of that, realized it wasn't enough. This is such an unexplored cross-disciplinary area that we need to look at more. Yeah. Uh, one master's thesis is not going to be enough to no. <laughs> plumb the depths of neuroscience and and uh, biblical studies. So we're going to start with your own story. 
And then we'll kind of go into some of the more, you know, didactic, the larger points and and looking at uh, the text and looking at popular books in the evangelical mm-hmm. world and what they say about emotion. So let's start. Where, where does your story, where does your story with uh, denying and eventually embracing your own emotions start? Well, I grew up as a pastor's kid in the 80s and 90s in the heart of evangelicalism. So, you know, if you've read Jesus and John Wayne, like that was my childhood and and young adulthood. My mom always had a stack of James Dobson books in the bathroom, (laughs) as you do, you know, to read. That tells us more about your mom's reading habits, I think, than anything else. Yeah, probably more than she might want me. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, we all we all uh, we all squeeze it in. Oh, that's a poor choice of words. We all fit it in where we can, you know. Well, you know, before smartphones, you had to bring a book in with you. So what you know, this is not important, but I know the exact time that happened for me. I I was like a little bit of an ADHD type kid. Like, I don't know, probably wouldn't have met criteria, but my buddy definitely was. And he was like, oh, I can't go to the bathroom without reading. And I had never thought of reading while I was using the bathroom. And then once he said that, I've never like I was like 12 and I've never been able to go back. And I sort of curse him for it because I could have had this nice, quiet, you know, a quiet minute or two. Nope. Now it's just and then phones just switched it from a book to my phone, you know. Right. Right. Oh, well. So it's a reading habits. So my parents were I met in Young Life. And they were very earnest. And I say that respectfully, they were very earnest and wanting to be faithful followers of Jesus. My parents also met in young life. That's really funny. Go ahead. Sorry, I will stop interrupting you. I will stop interrupting you to talk about toilet habits. Um, Please continue your story. Well, I'm sure that our stories intersect and and cross over a lot with with many similarities, as with many of our peers who grew up in American evangelicalism. So being a pastor's kid has its challenges because you're in a fishbowl, your parents are judged by your behavior and being an army brat is also like similar, tough upbringing. So I was both because my dad became an army chaplain Hmm. and we moved around a lot. So my parents decided to homeschool us, which is a whole nother layer deep in this American Christian experiment um, and became influenced by Gothard seminars Thankfully, we were never on the super extreme fundamentalist side of that, but you can't go to a homeschool curriculum fair in the 90s and not be exposed to pretty extreme fundamentalism. Yep. Christian nationalism starting to seep into that and isolation from the world and fear of secular disciplines, including a fear of psychology, a fear of neurobiology, a fear of of psychiatry, really kind of that anti-science view that we're seeing on full view now really started quite a while ago. hundred percent. I'm constantly thinking about how, when I see the, when I occasionally read these kind of articles that get posted by sort of anti-vax or skeptical evangelicals, I'm just like, oh, I recognize this reasoning. You know, this is like the reasoning from homeschool materials uh, in my childhood. You know, it's the same kind of, it's the same sort of approach to the, to the stuff of the world. Yes. And that is in some ways a uniquely American 
thing because I mean, I spent eight years at an international church in Europe where I was with Christians from all over the world. European Christians don't have that anti-science thing going on. Like it's totally acceptable to be an ecologist or to care about creation care or to, to worry about climate change as a Christian, like those are totally fine in Europe. Whereas that's not pretty standard in, in Christian circles here, at least among white evangelicals. So all that to say like, that's the milieu in which I grew up. And so I picked up along the way an anti-emotionalism bent. And I can't specifically point to things, but when you are studying a Becca curriculum, Bob Jones curriculum, Gothard stuff, it's there, like the current runs through it that we don't really trust secular science and we don't trust our emotions. And there's a biblical interpretation angle that runs through that as well, which takes verses like Jeremiah 17 out of context, the heart is deceitful above all things Mm -hmm. and reads that as our emotions are not to be trusted. Yeah. So that's what I absorbed. And I, my parents were fairly emotionally healthy and we had a stable home growing up and my parents never told me not to cry or squashed my emotions, but I think it was an inevitable thing to learn because of the mass influence of the media and school stuff that I was consuming. I relate so much to that. My own parents also were quite healthy. My dad is a therapist, which I've said many times. My mom is just like a, a funny, fairly healthy person, not, not a fundamentalist at all. She was a pastor's kid and has a rebellious streak in her, which I have inherited and love. Uh, and yet just because they were cool, <laughs> you know, did not stop me from being frankly traumatized by end times teaching from being, I would say probably traumatized is the wrong word, but very negatively impacted by purity culture teachings. And, you know, they weren't even like really big on any of that stuff. Like it's, it's just, it was so in the water that even yes. having, I, I do feel somewhat protected by having them. And I didn't get the worst of it that people who their wounds were inflected by their parents, which is mm-hmm, certainly mm-hmm. worse. But it's, I think that people outside of evangelicalism tend to underestimate just how pervasive because of all these parallel institutions, so much power in being able to shape so many separate moments of your kid's life with this content that is like, well, this is safe for kids. This is Mm -hmm. more or less what we believe. So there's a default Mm -hmm. acceptance and, you know, there's some good stuff in that. There's stuff I'm, I'm very grateful for. I actually really love that. I know the Bible so well, you know, I, I think that that's actually really helpful. I know a lot of the Psalms. I know most of the old Testament. I know every parable and every story about Jesus pretty well, you know, that's good. Uh, but <laughs> the stuff we're going to get into today, which also seeped in, not not so good and not based right. on really a- anything solid. Yes. So I had this nebulous idea that I shouldn't trust my emotions. I shouldn't listen to my emotions. If I felt something strongly, that was probably a bad sign. If I desired or wanted something very strongly, God was probably going to take it away from me Mm. because we just like the life of a Christian is a life of sacrifice and service, which it is. But that means something completely different than I thought it meant when I was a kid. Like I thought everything I loved, I would have to sacrifice. And if I wanted to do something, it probably wasn't what God wanted me to do because probably God God would want me to do something that I didn't want to do so that it would be a sacrifice every day. Just all these warped ideas 
you know, when you're a kid that's 13, 14, 15, going into high school, trying to form identity and trying to form an idea of what you want to do with the future. And I would say the most prevalent emotion that I experienced and quickly stuffed was grief because as a military kid, we moved all the time. And so I had deep homesickness and grief and losses, and I never knew how to process those. And I think my parents tried to make it positive and fun for us with the spirit of adventure and, and excitement and positivity, but there wasn't a lot of space for grief in that. Like no one taught me how to grieve, how to go through a grieving process. So there's a clinical term for it. It's like forbidden grief or invisible grief. I was just watching a counseling, a crisis counseling course the other day. Mm. And, um, that it was coming up, but like, basically people have a, an emotional handicap if they're not taught or given permission to grieve. So I went up till high school, moving frequently, losing all my friends, losing all my home. And I had this ability of being in a homeschool environment with my brothers and parents. And so there was some stability with that. So thankfully I wasn't leaving schools and teachers as well, but still like losing friends, losing churches, losing homes, losing yeah. places. I lived in Germany as a kid and then moved back to the U S and that's a huge culture shock. So I got into high school, we settled down and I got really involved in my church, uh, which in many ways was a gift of an experience. And yet there was, you know, purity culture and some kind of wacky charismatic stuff you know, it was pretty much in some ways a classic American youth group experience, but in other ways it was better because my youth pastor really believed in, in treating teenagers like spiritual adults in a very yeah. positive way, yeah. like called out our gifts, saw our gifts, let us serve, let us lead. I really developed as a leader and in my sense of calling to ministry and teaching and pastoring in that environment. So there were some really good things about it as well. When I left for college, like I just broke down weeping. And now I can look back on it and say that was a cumulative loss, yet yeah. one more home. And this had been my home, like my friends, my church, my ministries. Like I was deeply invested and I had to leave, which was so, so hard. And I, I, it was years before I recovered from that emotional blow. I went to ORU, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, which was just rife with hypocrisy and disaster. Um, uh -huh. and prosperity gospel. And that was, Ugh. I had some great professors, but the institution was kind of a nightmare. And so I got, I was really cynical and jaded by the time I graduated college and got married young and moved to Rhode Island. I was totally new to the East coast. It was not my culture. I grew up in the Midwest and like on military bases, which kind of mimic Midwest culture in a lot of ways. So I had no friends. Like I tried so hard to make friends. No one wanted to make friends with me because I was new and they didn't need me because they had been friends with the same people for 25 years. Mm -hmm. So I was just deeply lonely, completely cynical and jaded about Christianity and totally emotionally stunted because I didn't know how to process anything I had been through. And then you throw in childhood sexual abuse that I had never processed, never been to therapy for. I was just numb, like a numb shell. Hmm. And then started having children because that's what you're pushed to do, you know, at 24, 25. And then I had horrible postpartum depression, which went undiagnosed because we don't talk about psychology in the church. We actually had a huge proponent of nuthetic counseling on the pastoral staff at the church that we were going to. So now I know like 
they were really like, I was not going to get help there because I didn't even know how to approach the help that I needed. So I went through two- Just in case people don't know what that is, there there are these, there are a handful of these sort of brands, you might call it, of sort of Christian alternatives to counseling, nathetic counseling, biblical counseling. There's probably a few more. They sort of wax and wane depending on what denomination or part of the country you're in. None of them are real therapy. Some of them can, of course, be helpful for some people just by having an empathetic listener, which we know is much of what works about regular therapy is just having someone regard you positively, treat you well, listen to you well, and give you some space to work stuff out. But all of these forms of counseling are much more didactic. They they sort of, they have a point of view that they will not budge from and they view their role as to basically get you to come into line with it, which is a huge no-no in modern therapy for very good reasons. Okay, that's uh, right. Dan's nerd corner. Back to the story. Yes. It is important to define euthetic counseling. Euthetic counseling specifically believes that the Bible is all you need to counsel people and yeah. that counseling is really about giving them Bible verses. And like you said, making them come into alignment with believing, mm-hmm. giving mental assent to certain ways of interpreting the Bible and applying them to your life. And that your emotional and mental struggles tend to come from sin and you just need to find the sin and confess it. That's a simplification, but that's, I mean, the whole thing is a simplification. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like there's no yeah. view of understanding the role of serotonin in your brain, right. the role of dopamine and why you might need to take an SSRI and, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera. So thankfully I, I had friends outside of that, the circle I was in who talked to me about their own therapeutic journeys and, and pointed out like, you've got depression symptoms. You need to go talk to someone. Yeah. So thankfully my midwife actually had gone back to school and become a psychiatric nurse. Whoa. And so she had been with me during my first pregnancy. And then I was able to see her as a psychiatric nurse. And so we already had that relationship and she was able to prescribe antidepressants and went through the whole process with me of trying different medications, different doses till we found something that worked. And it was incredible within weeks, I like walked into her office wearing this yellow sweater and she, she just looked at me and she said, like your whole, you're, you're wearing yellow, but also like your whole mood is sunny. You're, you're like a different person. Mm. And the medication got me to a point where I was well enough to function and to reach out for more help. And so I started seeing a licensed Christian counselor who was a licensed counselor who happened to be a Christian. Yeah. That's a, very that's different a, from biblical counseling. Yeah. And, and that one, you, 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 you have to take that one on a case by case basis because yeah. some counselors know that they have something really good to offer Christians, but that Christians won't come unless they call themselves a Christian counselor, but they're real yeah. therapists. Other people might yes. call themselves, I do Christian counseling and they are not licensed and there are, are no ethical guidelines and you want to watch out. So you have to sort of check someone. Now you can check their website, yes. which is much easier. I imagine 20 years ago, it would have been a lot harder. Yeah. Well, she they actually, their practice had a website and it had all of her certifications on there and nice. it was, it was great. And so I, I saw her for probably a year. That period of my life is kind of a blur, but it was the first time I had been in, in therapy And she basically taught me how to feel and express my emotions, which I should Mm. have learned as a Mm five-year-old and didn't. She taught me an emotional vocabulary that now I would call emotional granularity. Like I learned many more words for emotions so I could more finely tune express and identify what I was feeling. And she taught me how to just 
let emotion exist in my body, how to feel it. She told me not to be afraid if I started weeping. She said, your body is only going to be able to sustain that for five or 10 minutes. Then it's going to pass and it's okay. And I spent, I would spend hours like sitting on the floor of my shower, just feeling emotions. And it was incredible. It was of course, very painful process, but it was also freeing and empowering. And I revisited homesickness. I just sat on my like 1970s orange hand-me-down couch in my living room in Providence, Rhode Island, and just felt like that cannonball in my gut of homesickness. And I let myself feel it. Hmm. And eventually those wounds started to heal as I could talk about them with a safe person and process them. And there was still so much more therapeutic work to do, but I, I dealt with some of the big stuff and I learned some big concepts and got healthy enough to get ready to move to Europe for um, my former youth pastor who had really empowered me and my gifts invited me and my husband to move because he'd become a missionary. So we moved to the Netherlands to help with this international church plant. Meanwhile, I got pregnant with my third child as we were preparing for that and stayed on SSRIs during my pregnancy and breastfeeding with her. So I didn't have a recurrence of postpartum depression. Mm. I actually participated in a research study at Brown University on SSRI use in pregnant women to see how does it impact children. And there's that toss up, like there's really bad outcomes for babies when mothers are depressed. There's potentially some complications for babies if mothers are on antidepressants during their pregnancy. So they were testing, does the slight risk to the baby outweigh the risk of the mother not getting treated. So it was really right. interesting. And they actually followed us for several years, I think until my daughter was between five and seven and we kept sending in reports so they could track her development, which was a really yeah. cool study. So they've published some papers on that. And they they found that it's worth the trade-off basically. Generally, yes. There's some things to be aware of, but like when mothers are on antidepressants, it reduces the instance of preterm birth, for example. That's a really mm. positive yeah. outcome. There's still some things they're looking at on, you know, are there some potential developmental hesitations in babies? Like maybe 30% of the time they're looking more into that, mm -hmm. but the outcomes for a mom who's depressed is definitely much worse. So don't be afraid to stay on your medication while you're pregnant women. Yeah, um, like talk to your doctor, but don't be afraid. Yeah. Especially if your depression is, is quite rough without them. Yes. Yeah. 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 That would be the time where it's really indicated. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a, a good pregnancy birth postpartum and then moved to Europe and we lived there for eight years and just explored the world through a whole new lens. And I started specializing in pastoral care for vulnerable people, especially abuse survivors and people dealing with mental and emotional struggles. Wow. And to wrap it all up, I wanted to write a book about Jesus emotions because the more I read the gospels, the more I saw Jesus as emotional. I started writing it and realized I don't have the research skills to do this. So I went to seminary yeah. and did a distance learning live classroom at Northern Seminary with Scott McKnight, where we, we were studying on zoom before studying on zoom was cool. Yeah, nice. <laughs> we were like the OG zoom class. And so now uh, we've moved back to the U S and I live in Wheaton, Illinois, and just applied to the PhD program here in Wheaton. Nice. So geographically you're back in, in the belly of the beast in Wheaton, yes, Illinois. Yes, in Wheaton. I, I finished reading Jesus and John Wayne, like sitting here. Like I can see Tyndale House, like through those trees from my house. And like Funny. Wheaton College and the Billy Graham Center is just down the road. I can get there in five minutes by bike. Yeah. It was an interesting <laughs> geographical juxtaposition. Yeah. 
Great story uh, and great sort of context for what we're talking about. Thank you for that. Yeah. I should ask guests to tell me their stories in more detail more often. I mean, there's a lot of things I sort of picked up on during your story. The one that I put in bold is this idea of emotional granularity. Mm. And the reason I did that is because I do this with a lot of my clients. Um, I have a lot of clients who could use more emotional awareness. Often these are male clients, but I have done it with female clients as well. And there are these awesome tools. Uh, I, I like, there are, there are a bunch of different versions, but they're emotion wheels. Did you use yes. these? Yes. I was just going to, if you didn't mention, I was going to say an emotion wheel is such a great tool. Incredible. Uh, I, I first saw them when my therapist used them with me because I actually lack some emotional granularity as well in it. And I'm working on it, but I have seen incredible gains, you know, anecdotally with, with multiple clients of where I have them kind of come in and over the week, you know, they're supposed to bring in two instances where they felt something strongly and they use the wheel and they identify either they've used it before or we look at it together and they identify like, well, I was sad, but actually I was feeling kind of bewildered and abandoned and like abandoned is such a better word than sad yes. because it leads to questions like abandoned by who or what, you know, bewildered. Okay. Why were you like, what was confusing? So it wasn't just sad. It was confusing. What part was confusing? And then that leads to just, those are just great prompts for, for talking about whatever's going on. Right. Yes. I love emotion wheels and I love the concept of emotional granularity. I first saw an emotion wheel in probably 2016 when I was reading The Wisdom of Your Heart by Mark Allen Shelsky, which is such a wonderful book on an introduction to emotional health for Christians. Hmm. Wonderful book. So Mark included an emotion wheel in his book. I'm like, this is so cool. The idea of emotional granularity I get from Lisa Feldman Barrett, a neuroscientist who wrote How Emotions Are Made, which you cannot read a better book on understanding emotion. It's all the latest neuroscience research on emotion written in a way that non-neuroscientists can read it. So Lisa, Lisa Feldman Barrett's book is excellent. And she uses the analogy of a sommelier, like for wine with emotions. She says, when you have more emotional granularity, you are like a sommelier of emotions. You understand the nuance the, the smell of it, the scent of it, the floral notes, the taste of wet rocks. Like you, you have this vocabulary, like a wine expert can talk about wine. You can talk about emotions and you can express yourself better. You can understand yourself better. So she shows that people with higher emotional granularity, people with a bigger emotional vocabulary are more emotionally healthy because they can express and understand and communicate how they're feeling. I love her work and we can talk more and more about her work because it's her theory of constructed emotion is, is the, the main theory that I'm bringing into my biblical interpretation work. Well, give me that theory. Let's, let's hear it. Okay. So Barrett says that emotions are the meaning we make from our sensations. Emotion is your brain, your mind really saying we are experiencing fluttering stomach and given our experience with that sensation, our context, like I'm about to get up in front of people and speak. Great. I'm going to construct an instance of nervousness. 
I am feeling nervous. Whereas in a different context, your brain might say, well, there's the fluttery stomach again, but we're about to run into someone that we've got a big crush on. Yeah. So we're going to construct infatuation. It's the same physical sensation, but your mind makes a different emotion concept because your context is different. I mean, C.S. Lewis literally talked about this. I don't remember, I don't know which book it was in, but he talks about indigestion. He's like, the same feeling in my stomach could be indigestion or falling in love. Yes, that's so, pretty much what Barry's saying, yeah. Basically, mentally, we have access to so much more information, context, interpretive, whatever stuff to use. But biologically, we don't have all that many feelings like the actual physical and neurological sensations are much fewer than what we can put together when we combine the sensation with what we know about our own context in which it's happening. And then so an emotion is the combination of the two. There's some feeling that precedes Mm -hmm. the emotion That is a part of the emotion, but it's only one part of the emotion, basically. Yes. And so in my thesis, and this is going to go in my book, I disambiguate the words. Like a feeling is not the same thing as emotion. We use them interchangeably, but feeling and emotion are not the same thing. A feeling is a physical sensation, but an emotion is a constructed concept that puts meaning to a physical feeling. And emotion is not the same as desire. And that's really important, especially in a Christian context, because I think we conflate desire with emotion. And so Mm -hmm. part of the pushback in Christian circles against emotion is I think a pushback against sinful desires. Yeah. But desire is just simply to want something and we should have desires. We should want things in our lives. We should want them strongly and we shouldn't be afraid of our desires. Yes, we can desire to sin, but we can also desire really good things. And shutting down emotion is not the way to deal with desire. Like for instance, because I'm a good evangelical, I always think about sexual sin when I think of sin or and especially I, yeah, desire. Yeah, I go into that in, in yeah, the, that book chapter because why? Like why why do we always think desire and we immediately think sexual sex? We have this like huge hang up about sex in evangelicalism. I mean, if somebody could actually answer that question, that would be worth a lot of money. Uh, but I, I don't, you know, I'm not sure why. But anyway, that's what we were trained to do. So for instance, like a husband could see a piece of lingerie it could be on a, a person like a model or it could be on a mannequin, you know, in a store mm-hmm. and they could feel like desire to engage with that piece of lingerie. Now they could feel, I would really like to get this for my wife. Yep. So then they're feeling the exact same thing, the desire toward it, the pull toward it, or they could be looking at the model in the catalog and going, man, I hate my wife these days. I really would like to have sex with this model, you know? So it can be the desire, the, the physical sensation in the loins, if you will, is the same, but it's the, it's the context and the, that would make it like, so obviously the one desire is not at all sinful and the other one is probably sinful, certainly unhealthy to entertain. If you find yourself in that position, men, I don't recommend you try and have sex with the model. I recommend you try and pack things up with your, or the mannequin. (laughs) I recommend you patch things up with your wife, right? Like that's the healthier move. But the, I love this. This is very, very helpful. Like it's the feeling plus the context or cognition. Mm -hmm. That's what makes the whole thing. And so if we say, oh, it's just the feeling, it's just the pull. It's only the pull towards something. Well, And the pull is what we demonize. Right. 
then we're in a huge amount of trouble. Huge amount of trouble. Right. Because you've got three things going on in that scenario, right? You've got the feeling. So I don't know how you... It's two person. How do you feel desire in your body? Like that's probably an inappropriate question, but like, how, oh, I'm you know, an open book, Becky. So you, you know, you've got feelings, <laughs> yeah, in your loins as you put it. Yeah, but your you, heart like, rate increases. Got, like, yeah, heart rate increase, mm-hmm. like pupils dilating, maybe yeah. like kind of a flush creeping up your neck, or maybe you yeah, go you, weak in the knees. Like those are feelings. Those are yeah. sensations that are happening in your body. Then you've got desire, which is separate from that. Like you can want something that might be connected. Like there's interplay between desire and what you're feeling in your body. Mm -hmm. Then your mind is constructing an emotion that has a cognitive basis, a basis in your history, the emotion words, you know, the emotion concepts you've seen modeled for you, what you know is appropriate social behavior. You're not going to like go run up and start kissing a mannequin because that's not appropriate social behavior, but most people wouldn't, I guess. Um, And then you're constructing emotion and the emotion might be love or tenderness or curiosity. Like there could be a ton of different emotions that you construct while you've got feeling and desire all going on, but they are three separate things that swirl together in a process, but we can't lump them in as one thing and just say all of it is bad and throw it out. Yeah. And you know, you, you hinted at something there because the third part, the cognitive part the meaning that we tell ourselves about the feeling that we're having and about, you know, whatever, the desire, the bodily feelings. So that is basically constricted by the emotion concepts that we know. Uh-huh. So we might go, ah, every time X happens, I just get so mad. And you might go 10 years just thinking all you're doing is getting mad. But like to pull up an emotion wheel really quick in real time here. Yeah. What if, like, if you start to learn the difference between feeling annoyed, resentful, let down, apathetic, pushed to the edge, bored, right? Like, insulted or mocked. Then you go, oh, ah, I'm feeling really insulted by that person. As opposed to, like, I'm really bored with this person. Like, those are so different. And one thing I tell clients is like, and I don't remember where I got it, but I didn't make it up. You know, emotions are information Mm -hmm. and we want to sort of, we want to look at them like a detective because we're trying to figure out how to make things better for you. Well, emotions are an incredible source of information. You're feeling insulted. Okay. By whom? About what? Do you have a history of being insulted by people that this is triggering for you unconsciously? Is there something to dig in there? You know, so the whole thing is kind of constricted by the funnel of your imagination and the the concepts that you have. And so if you can expand that vocabulary, all of a sudden you are interpreting your feelings, your bodily experience and your interactions with other people. Now you it's like you've tripled or quadrupled your vocabulary, right? And except uh, specifically around emotions, which is so valuable. And here's a really cool thing that Barrett writes about when you learn other languages, you can even more increase your emotional concepts because different cultures have different emotions. Whoa. 
she she spends a whole section of the book disproving the previous theory, which was that emotions are universal, like that there are seven basic emotions. They're universal. All cultures experience them and all people express them the same way on their faces. She debunks all of that with this long, like many, many research studies with her team, et cetera. So this idea of emotion concepts that are constructed, they vary from culture to culture. They vary from language to language. And so if you meet people from different cultures and you learn their emotion concepts, you benefit yourself because you've, then you've got more emotions to construct and it can be even more fine-tuned. And she gives the example of a Dutch emotion word, gezellig. There's no direct translation in English. And I loved it because I, I knew gezellig when she was writing about it. And it's a shared emotion. It doesn't happen within a person. It happens between people which like American emotions happen in one person, right? This idea of shared emotion is not super American, but Hazelichite is this shared emotion of coziness and family and togetherness and warmth. And it happens like around a, a fire with a friend or like over a cozy family dinner. And it's this beautiful shared emotion. Well, now that I know that word, I construct that with my family when we're sitting around the fire in the cold Chicago winter and we feel this chizelichite together. And that's just one example of, of how language helps us. So what you're saying is the homework I should really be giving my clients is like Duolingo sessions. <laughs> well, you'd have to do a lot. I do Duolingo uh, to improve my Dutch and you'd have to do a lot of sessions before you get to emotion words. Yes. I, I'm, yeah, I'm kidding. But uh, yes. That would, you know, in a perfect world. Okay, great. Or I guess if you had a, uh, if you have a bilingual or trilingual client, that would be an interesting thing to mm -hmm. try and yeah, have them absolutely. kind of translate those emotions back into English for you. And it might, yeah, free, there's a free idea, therapists. That um, sounds fun. One of the things that in your, I, you know, I looked through your uh, master's thesis, which you sent me before our conversation. And I did, I want to bring the Bible in here before we bring the Bible back in. So going back to your sort of teen uh, and youth years, there was a way that you used the Bible around emotions that I think is interesting and worth sharing with people. So how did you sort of, I don't know, and I don't know if you were taught this, if you just sort of picked it up, but you would like write these, ver can you tell us about that and, and sort of yeah, where yeah. you think that came from? Yeah, well, like you said, growing up with a lot of biblical literacy is something I'm grateful for, though I've changed my interpretive lens, but I'm grateful that I had so much literacy with the Bible to begin with. But yeah, in my college dorm room, when I was feeling very normal human things like homesick and grieved and complicated stuff around boys and friends and relationships and my place in the world, these were all just normal human emotions that I should never have pathologized, but I, I was pathologizing them because that's what I had picked up was appropriate somehow. And so I had been raised in a context where you use scripture to combat temptation, right? Like Jesus being tempted in the desert and throwing scripture at the devil. And so I like beautifully wrote some Bible verses to put on my wall about like how my heart is deceitful and I should, you know, trust in the Lord and put my, my attentions on God and I probably, if I look through my college papers, I probably still have those somewhere. I really should like look those up and scan them for my book. This was not abnormal in the subculture I was in to basically spiritually bypass, which I think is Alison Cook's words, to use scripture and, and spiritual concepts to get around our emotions instead of just experiencing them. 
So I was trying to convince myself that my emotions were deceitful. My heart wasn't to be trusted. I could only trust in God. And probably what that meant was I should trust in anything that feels wrong. Isn't that terrible? Like I I'm like realizing that as I say it, I should trust in things that feel wrong, which made me a sitting target for abuse. Hmm. Because when you, when you have trained yourself to ignore your survival instincts, to ignore your gut checks, to ignore your intuition, to ignore things that feel wrong and submit to them, that absolutely primes me for abusive relationships. Uh, so this is not, this is going to sound like I'm changing the subject from abuse, but it's not. One of my favorite ideas to kick around, which is maybe someday a book idea, is to sort of do a thought experiment uh, for for Christians to think about, okay, let's say you know that a person is born into a jihadist terror group, because I'm trying to pick the thing that they are like most <laughs> vehemently against, right? What skills would you want that child to learn so that they could get out of that group and find their way out? And then the idea would be, okay, whatever those things are, these are the kind of things we would want our children to develop, right? Not obviously not with the kind of intensity and, and rapidity that a jihadi child would need to develop them, right? Because they're in physical danger, but just the, the list of things, that's a pretty good starting list for like, what does it take to be a, a person in the world who might be being deceived and, and might be groomed for something very bad? And then, okay, now we apply those skills to our tradition or whatever. And it reminds me of that sort of project of it's like, look, there's this thing that sets you up very poorly, you know? So some very bad actor in your life starts to say, Hey, yeah, I know you're not feeling good, but like, that's the devil. Like God wants you to listen to me and you've learned over time. Ah, I guess. Yeah, I do kind of ignore these kind of things. Right. That's mm -hmm. like, Oh, that is scary stuff. Yeah, it is. And a lot of my pastoral care work has been around women who've survived domestic violence or sexual abuse or spiritual abuse who were very much taught that their righteous anger at being abused and their desire to fight back against oppression was sinful instead of no, that anger is coming directly from the heart of God because God is furious on your behalf. God is going to destroy these oppressors. Like, have you read the prophets? Like that anger you're feeling isn't sinful. That is of God and from God for you. And emotions get flipped around, keeping people in oppressive situations. And I, I would say women, but keeping all people, like oppression looks the same wherever it functions. And part of oppression is anti-emotionalism. It's a really fun time to be a patron of this podcast because patrons get two exclusive episodes per month and we're in the middle of some just great, I mean, I think it's great. I've, I've been really enjoying it a lot. Uh, some new patron content. We're right in the middle of a series of um, reactions to passages in the four gospels between myself and and Ariel of the Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible podcast, one of the all-time great podcast titles. 
Uh, and we did Matthew. That was the most recent patron exclusive episode. And we're doing Mark next month, or, or sorry, at the end of this month, February. And uh, today, we are later today, I'm recording another Generation Gap Culture Hour with Tony Jones. And we are going to be joined uh, by Tony's son, Tanner. And we're going to hear from him, um, not necessarily speaking for his whole generation, but as a Gen Z person, what kind of questions are his friends asking about Christianity? What kind of, what's their deconstruction look like? I'm, I've become recently so curious um, about how sort of the next generation thinks about the kind of stuff that we often talk about on this show. So those are uh, some upcoming uh, patron exclusive episodes. Tony and I did the first Generation Gap Culture Hour last month, and you can listen to that if you're a patron. Patrons also have access to the Facebook group, which is patron only, and it's an awesome online community. So patreon.com slash danco. It's five bucks a month if you are interested in joining that group. And there is a sliding scale for those of you who cannot afford five bucks a month right now at this phase of life. You can email me if that's you. My email is in the show notes. All right, back to my conversation with Becky. Well, let's transition a bit to some texts. I want to talk about the Bible and Jesus. And then I know you've also done some really interesting research in reading through popular evangelical texts and looking for the way that they talk about emotions. Let's talk about Jesus. So your dissertation, your or your master's thesis, rather, is pretty much about Jesus and emotions. Yeah. Um, it's a textual study. Uh, obviously, you can't probably summarize it in, in 10, 15 minutes. But like, you know, give us the, sort of the broad outlines of, of what you found in that work. Sure. Well, I had noticed just from reading the Gospels that Jesus is emotional. Jesus expresses a lot of emotions. And I started to think probably maybe seven years ago, hey, there's something to this. Jesus is emotional and we have this anti-emotionalism in our Christianity, but that's not modeled on Jesus. What's going on here? What's the disconnect? Why are we against emotion or worried about emotion or shutting down emotion when Jesus is clearly wildly emotional? Mm -hmm. What are just, just brief examples, just in case people can't pull them up. I mean, I'm thinking of a couple flips over the tables at the temple. He cries when Lazarus dies. Uh, there are times where he's very clearly like exhausted and, and goes away to be alone. What else? So Jesus full of joy is an interesting one. And sometimes I want to hesitate to bring that up because of the pervasive idea that Christians should always be full of joy and this sort of forced happiness that isn't really happiness, but yeah. it's just this mental idea of happiness that isn't really an emotion. But the emotions in the Bible really are emotions. And Matthew Elliott does a wonderful job of that in his book, Faithful Feelings. That was his doctoral dissertation. And so if you want to like look into the idea that the emotions in the Bible are emotional and that God is emotional, Jesus is emotional, Matthew Elliott's work is excellent. So, but Jesus is full of joy and it's worth saying. And that doesn't mean that we should be joyful in every circumstance. But when Jesus is full of joy, it's because he sent out the 72 disciples and they've come back and they're telling him the success of of ministry that they saw. They are seeing God's kingdom advancing and all the things that Jesus told them they would do. They're seeing it done and they're happy and he's happy and he's full of joy. That's a beautiful scene. And he has this prayer where he thanks the father for revealing these things to them. 
And he's just exuberant about what God is doing because this is kind of a high point. Like he's trained them. He sent them out. They've been successful. He's seeing his mission fulfilled and he's full of joy about it. And I've had times where people have told me, like, if I want something in ministry, I shouldn't have it. Like if I, if I say, Hey, like the title I should have for this pastoral role is such and such like, well, you shouldn't be worried about titles. You shouldn't be worried about wanting to do things. You know, you should just do it. I'm like, no, like Jesus wanted them to go out and do things. He wanted them to be successful and he deeply desired to do ministry work. And he found fulfillment in ministry work. There's nothing wrong with finding joy and fulfillment in doing ministry work. Women, I think, especially get castigated for enjoying their work. It's this weird thing. Like, no, Jesus enjoyed his work and the work of his disciples. His female disciples were included in that, by the way. Yeah. And then Jesus is surprised. But a Mary Magdalene officially a saint. Yes. Like it's agreed upon it. She was not the woman caught in adultery. That was like a later legend. Oh gosh. She's not like his secret wife, a la the nope. Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Well, Mary Magdalene, I mean, if if you look at Luke 8, Luke, Luke 8 and 9, and like Joanna, Susanna, Mary, the women who were funding his ministry, mm-hmm. There's some really interesting, both Richard Hayes and Ben Witherington, two New Testament scholars, believe that Joanna, Chusa's wife, later became the apostle Junia. And there's some really interesting work on like possibly her name change, Hmm. um, which would validate Junia as an apostle because she was one of Jesus' original followers. Anyway, I I find that theory fascinating. I love it. My youngest daughter is named Junia after the apostle Junia. Anyway. So Jesus is surprised then by the centurion's faith when he yields the centurion's servant, he's astonished. And I think when people view Jesus as being completely omniscient, yep. he couldn't be surprised. Yep. But when we understand that Jesus set aside his omniscience to fully enter into the human experience, he knew like divine insight by the power of the Holy spirit in the same way that the Holy spirit can reveal things to us today. But I believe he did set aside his omniscience and he was truly surprised in a very human way to see this faith in a Roman. And I think that's a really cool passage. You know, it makes me think of there's, there's a theological angle here too. And I don't, I don't know if this comes up in your work, but the idea of Jesus as being fully man It's like, that is a reason for us to pursue emotional granularity because Jesus had emotional granularity. Jesus was not going, if Jesus has experienced everything we've experienced, been tempted in every way, you know, whatever that language is in Paul, Jesus is not walking around going, um, I'm kind of afraid Maybe, oh, this, I feel something sort of vaguely negative. No, Jesus is like overwhelmed. Jesus is feeling, you know, betrayed by Judas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's feeling provoked, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. He's, he gets deep into these Mm -hmm. emotions and, and I don't know, you know, that's maybe not such a straight line that like, you know, to be fully God and fully man necessarily means you have emotional granularity. But I think you could make the case for it. And certainly yeah. like you would think if if what emotional granularity is like like we were talking about earlier, if that is increasing your vocabulary 
for being able to interpret the bodily sensations that you have, mm-hmm. right? Then if Jesus is fully man, then Jesus would have a pretty good emotional vocabulary. He yes. wouldn't be walking around with stunted, a stunted emotional life. That would be a yes. weird way to be fully man, fully human. Yes, and his mother, as you see from the Magnificat, like Mary was very emotionally expressive. Yeah. And as Scott McKnight says, if that was your mother, is any surprise he turned out the way he did, right? Like, look at his mom <laughs> That's prophesying great. the downthrow of the mighty and the mm-hmm. lifting up of the poor and hungry. And that was his mom. And of course, he, in a human way, like beyond his divine mission, in a human way, of course, he was like his mother in his mission, his vocabulary and his emotional expressions, We just, you can see where he got his emotion concepts from, which is a whole other interesting thing, like to look at Mary and her message and to look at Jesus and his message, and then to look at James and his message, like Jesus' brother, James, and the epistle of James, you, you can really trace similar themes. That's a whole other sermon, but I think that's a really interesting study. Yeah. Their compassion for the poor is one of the main things that comes through. Yeah. Uh, G- one of Jesus's primary emotions is his deep compassion where he's moved in his bowels with compassion. He's moved to take action on their behalf. Jesus probably was poor. And so he knows on a, you know, a guttural mm-hmm. level, what that feels like for himself. It gives him empathy for others. Yeah. He's blue collar, right? His dad's yeah. a manual laborer basically. And he yep. probably walked to Sephora himself and Sephora, Sephora's the beauty store. <laughs> Sephora. Yeah, you know, he he takes his union card and his paycheck and he goes and he gets some really great cosmetics. But he walks he there. He Amazing. does not he have his own camel or yes. donkey to ride. Right. No, probably walk to Sephora to work on the rich people's houses there uh, with mm. stonework or whatever. So Jesus is compassionate. An interesting scene is when he's weeping over Jerusalem, like looking out over the city and weeping. And it seems to be an emotion that comes from rejection, disappointment, longing on their behalf. And then also like this motherly instinct and nurturing, because he says how I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And so very tender, heartbreaking, emotional scene with a lot of emotional nuance. Yeah. Probably the most nuanced and complicated emotional scene is Gethsemane. Yeah. Where Jesus, I think, is truly afraid. Yeah. He's sweating blood. Right. Afraid of death, distressed, (laughs) traumatized. Yeah. Probably having, I view that lens through the lens of trauma. And I would say he is he's suffering trauma symptoms. Like I, I see that I, I'm guessing like body shaking, hmm. tremors, intrusive thoughts, the physical reaction of, of sweating blood, which I think is called hematroditis. So he's feeling all these complicated emotions. Luke uses agonia, which is where we get our word agony, but it, it mm-hmm. only occurs there in the new Testament. Hmm. And it's, it's an intense kind of suffering when it's used in extra biblical literature. So he's got all the, all the different gospel writers put a different spin on it. So you get a really complex emotional picture when you look at a a synopsis of how all the gospel writers view that scene. might be interesting to, to take that model of emotions and apply it 
there to Jesus in the garden. So you're, you're, you're kind of doing it, but I just want to sort of highlight it. So he's, he's got these physical sensations. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether or not we think that the historical Jesus was literally sweating blood, I, I mean, that can occasionally happen, but at least poetically that is describing intense uh, mental distress and he knows what's coming because even if he left aside his all-knowing divinity, like he's not an idiot, he sees what's coming and he, you know, the whole thing about Jesus, you know, even if you're not a Christian, the guy willingly let himself be crucified. So I, I think that that's basically unambiguous, although I guess I don't know that for sure among sort of non-Christian, you know, New Testament folks, but he's, so he's got these feelings in his body, right? And mm -hmm. he is, and then he's got this mental anguish as he is projecting into the future, which humans yep. are uniquely capable of doing. Which Barrett would call the prediction function of right. your brain. Like he's predicting, he knows yes. what's going to happen. Yes. And so that's why he says, if it be your will, father, take this cup from me, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, I will do it. If I, you know, I'm going to, I'll be faithful. And then he has these emotional concepts that he is interpreting those feelings. So there could have been a guy literally 10 doors down in Jerusalem who is having a panic attack <laughs> about something completely unrelated, feeling very similar bodily experiences, maybe mm -hmm. not sweating blood, but you know, there are people who are in anguish. Maybe someone in a leper colony down mm -hmm. the road is feeling anguish, but they're not having the same emotions that Jesus is having because they are cognitively putting the context and the feelings together in a different way. Right. Yes. And so that is just interesting. I don't know that it does much to sort of apply it there, but I had the impulse to do it. And I don't know. Are, do, do you find any, yeah. is there any fruit in doing that? I think so. I mean, I did some of that work. I'd like to continue doing that work. Yeah. When someone is having an emotion or con Barrett would call that constructing an emotion, like you're constructing an emotion in yourself. When you watch someone else having an emotion, she calls that perceiving, like we perceive someone else's emotions mm -hmm. and our perception may not be accurate because we're going to read our own emotion concepts onto them. Right. So when I look at Jesus's emotions in the gospels, I'm cognizant that I am perceiving his emotions. And there are some cases where he tells us what he's feeling in the garden. Like he tells the disciples, I am deeply distressed. It's one of the few places where he puts his own emotion, like he expresses his own emotions. He is deeply distressed, disturbed, disappointed in them. That's a little like unstated, but it's there. Like, couldn't you yeah. stay with me? Oh, couldn't you stay awake? I don't think it's a, right. Yeah, for sure. It's clearly he doesn't there. say, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> he doesn't like, say, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. I'm Peter. disappointed. <laughs> right. Which would be crushing coming from Jesus. Oh. Um, so we're perceiving his emotions and there is to some extent reading our own emotion concepts onto him, but sometimes the gospel writers are very clear about what he's feeling or he's clear. And in other ways we're interpreting, there's a scholar named Stephen Forwind who exegetes all of Jesus' emotional experiences in the gospels. It's called Jesus' emotions in the gospels. And he even looks at things like when Jesus sighs deeply and tries to understand, okay, what emotion is going on here? And then another concept we can bring into Gethsemane is to go back to Lazarus, which you mentioned, he is grieving over his friend's death, grieving over the sisters, like grieving with the sisters, his, his really dear friends, but he is also angry. And there's some different theories about why he's angry. 
And the one that makes the most sense to me is from Stephen Forwind. He is angry at death itself. And he is probably like, what, six days out from his own death Wow! at that point. And so he knows that it's coming. He knows he's journeying toward Jerusalem as he's walking toward Jerusalem to get back to Bethany, which I think Bethany is like six kilometers from Jerusalem. Like it's just over the hill, the Mount of Olives. Like you could walk from the Mount of Olives back to Martha's house. Mm -hmm. So they're getting closer. It's dangerous. He's putting his life at risk to go to Bethany. He knows what's coming for him in Jerusalem to some extent. And he is angry at death like the cosmic power of death, his enemy, death. He's angry that death has taken Lazarus and he's angry that death is coming for him. Perhaps he's angry that death takes all of humanity and he knows it's his mission to destroy death from the inside, but he's angry at death. And that is so powerful. He's going to go onto the cross He's going to willingly enter into death and he's going to break it from the inside and like eternally break the power of death. But he goes at it with this anger. And so I think he's bringing that into Gethsemane along with his fear and his distress, his anger. But then you you mentioned his physical sensations and his emotions, but then there's also desire. Like we talked about earlier, which Hebrews kind of backfills for us for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So he's got like this desire and this mission and emotion is motivating. It's a motivating force for us. So the emotion of joy in some ways is what gets him through the crucifixion. So it's an incredibly complicated scene. And I, I would love to look into it even more. I want to, I want to wrap up this Jesus and emotion segment by recommending to people that they watch the film, Mary Magdalene with uh, Rooney Mara and Joaquin Phoenix playing Jesus. It is a film that l- sort of inexplicably got kind of, I don't know, ignored or didn't get much, didn't get much press. It, it got sort of medium reviews, but I have watched it and a number of friends whose taste in films I respect have all really liked it. I think it's, I think it's probably my favorite filmed depiction of Jesus, mm. the way that the way that it's written and that Joaquin Phoenix plays him, obviously Rooney Mara kills it as Mary Magdalene. And, the, and there's a whole, you know, it, it's funny. People might think of it as like, like I assumed it was maybe kind of like a revisionist history film, but it isn't really. It's like, it's kind of based on official Catholic teaching about Mary Magdalene. You know, it takes a few artistic liberties as anything does, but the portrait of the emotions of Jesus in it are like, it's probably worth watching if you thought that the last 20 minutes of our conversation was interesting, like that might be reason enough to watch the film. Also I'm planning on doing a patron episode where Sari Martin Concepcion and I respond to that film. So it all, you could also listen to us talk about it. Anything else to add before we move on to popular Christian teachings around emotions? Not enough Christians read the gospels. Whoa. And not enough Christians read the gospels regularly. And I know because I was one. Yeah. So starting a practice of reading the gospels regularly will change your Christian life. You say you follow Jesus, but do you know what his life was like that he modeled for you to follow? How intimately do you know his life? How intimately do you know his teachings? How much do you get a full picture of him? So I would say, if you haven't 
even if you have read the gospels recently, like read one a month for the next four months and get through all four of them and then do it again. And it will change you. It should change you, but pay special attention to Jesus emotions and see what emotion concepts you can learn from Jesus and start to construct in your own life. And uh, I'm grateful to my pastor in the Netherlands who had to start reading through the gospels one year. And that's a practice that I love and highly recommend. I'm the Dos Equis man. I don't often read the Bible, but when I do, I pretty much only read the gospels. <laughs> I would like to read the Bible more than I do. I, there are complicated reasons for that, that we don't have to get into here. Okay, Becky. So you, you did, you haven't just looked at Jesus's emotions in the gospels. You've also done something that I love. I interviewed uh, Daniel Silliman when he came on to talk about his book, Reading Christian Fiction. I love this idea of going back through, also the the great sex rescue folks had mm-hmm. gone through the popular Christian books around mm-hmm. sex and marriage. I love these this kind of a thematic analysis of the stuff that regular people are reading. It is super valuable. And so how did you go about looking for popular evangelical teaching on emotions, like Mm -hmm. which books and how did you figure out which books to read? Yeah. So I originally wanted to look at how emotion was taught in discipleship because I was serving as a discipleship director. I was writing discipleship curriculum and trying to figure out how do we make disciples of Jesus? Like, how do we really help people learn to follow him faithfully, including in our emotions? So I looked at some popular discipleship material including the books by Nikki Gumbel, like the alpha stuff, which was really popular in Europe. Mm -hmm. Discipleship Essentials by Greg Ogden, which I know is a really classic text. I was also, I was working on my workbook with Scott McKnight on discipleship called Following King Jesus. So I was kind of doing like concurrent research on discipleship curriculum. But what I found was that emotion teaching is almost completely absent from most standard discipleship curriculum. It's just not a component that's covered. Whereas I think our emotions are a huge part of our lives and we should talk about them in a discipleship context. So either it was completely missing or there would be a little bit of a touch on it and usually around anger. Don't let your anger cause you to sin. But there wasn't really a lot of discipleship teaching on how to understand your emotions, accept your emotions, express your emotions. By the way, another interesting point of uh, overlap for us, Greg Ogden was the senior pastor at my church growing up. Oh, awesome. Okay. Until I was like maybe a teenager and he left to be an author essentially mm-hmm. and succeeded, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a very well-known book and there's, yeah. that's not a slight on it, but just to say, I think there's a big gap in it because it doesn't sure. touch on emotion. Sure. And then Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality was a huge breakthrough. Yeah. Zondervan was really smart to sign him. It's been very successful and he has changed the conversation. Now it's okay to say his tagline, you can't be spiritually healthy if you're not emotionally healthy. So I'm really grateful for the breakthrough work that Pete Scazzaro did on that. Yeah. I know that uh, people were reading that at our old church here in Seattle that, that we left about three years ago. Um, but that was one of the things that they were doing really well. They were focusing on emotional health in discipleship. And that mm-hmm. was, I was like, oh, sweet. This is awesome. Yeah. It just is missing from the discipleship conversation. 
And then I started looking over the past 50, 60 years, um, what has been taught on emotion. And I lucked out because there was an international Baptist church near us that had uh, a church library that they were cleaning out um, in the Netherlands. And they said I could just go in and, and take books. And I did. I took quite a haul because there were a lot of Christian books from the 70s and 80s. And I was like, mm. that'll be good for research. That'll be good for Perfect. research. Perfect. Yeah. Hold a stack. So I ended up with several, including James Dobson's book, Emotions, Can You Trust Them? Mm-hmm. With the implied, you know, implied answer that you can. Clearly not. Uh, and yeah. Tim LaHaye's The Spirit Controlled Temperament which has got something like 27 printings or millions of copies. But that wasn't going far enough back. So I actually have traced it back to Bill Bright and the Four Spiritual Laws, which is like 1920s, 1930s. That's still not far enough back. And I want to do some more historical work because, okay, so I've worked from the present to the back. Now I want to work from backwards to forwards. I think, here's my theory, that after the great revivals, And the emphasis on emotionalism as a sign of conversion, Mm -hmm. right? I think there was a backlash against emotion. And I think it came from a sincere place. And that sincere place was, no, we want people to have assurance of salvation without having to fall down shaking in the aisles. Like that's a sincere and good desire. And I've talked a lot with my friend, Heather Griffin, about this. She's a, a master student at Duke oh, and she's Heather, done a lot of research. Yes. Isn't Been she amazing? Pod, I do believe that her episode is sort of like the fan favorite, the listener she's favorite. Uh, it's, it is actually my favorite episode I've ever done of this podcast. That's awesome. Uh, yes. It's, uh, if people haven't heard it, it's called Bible Truths, Sincerity Culture, and Evangelical Instatrust. It's like. A 120 awesome. or 120 something. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So she and I have talked and she's digging into some sermons from that period and finding that anti-emotionalism language. So there's like, I think we should, she and I should probably co-author a paper on that at some point. Please. So she can trace it back further than I can, but all that anti-emotionalism, like assurance of salvation got us to the point of the twenties and thirties when Bill Bright and Billy Graham were learning from Henrietta Mears in California And Bill Bright wrote the four spiritual laws. Now there are four supposedly, but there's actually five. If you look at the tract itself, there's an illustration in the back of the four spiritual laws of a train and there's faith facts and feelings and faith is the engine and feelings are the caboose and the unstated fifth spiritual law. Well, the unnumbered, right? It's stated, but it's not numbered. The unnumbered fifth spiritual law is don't trust your feelings. And it's in the context of when you decide to follow Jesus, you can know you're saved and don't let your feelings dissuade you. But it's a very clear, your emotions aren't trustworthy. And that tract has been distributed millions and millions of times. Mm-hmm. And in the form, it is still printed in today that anti-emotionalism message is in there. So in the very gospel presentation, people have been getting for a hundred years. Yeah, They are taught from the very beginning not to trust their emotions. So it is part of the gospel, which is horrific because it's not part of the gospel. It should never be part of the gospel. It is. It is actually unrelated to the gospel, you know, to put some of the language we've been talking about on it. 
the feeling itself, the the sort of the draw, the desire, the bodily experience of being pulled or drawn towards something is itself kind of a nothing burger until it has cognitive structure around it. And so people, I mean, people who convert to Christianity literally are trusting their feelings in the moment where they feel like the Holy Spirit is telling them to go down, like Mm. go, go down to the altar call or someone, their friend is talking to them about Jesus. And they're like, I, I think this is for me that Mm -hmm. like as much as a handful of emotionally stunted white men would like to think that people become Christians because they've reviewed all the evidence or whatever. It's not what happens. It's not how people even come to faith. Emotions are involved in it. So it's like literally, you know, Bill Bright is actually undercutting his own evangelism by saying that about feelings. So that's, that's kind of interesting too. Yes. So I'm going to, like, I'm working on a book. I'm going to publish this, but like crew isn't going to be happy with me because I, I kind of, I feel like I have to come out strongly against the four spiritual laws track. Like you think it's actually damaging people. They need to do a serious revision of it. Please I mean, do. like, let's, you know, my view of the gospel is very colored by Scott McKnight. So I'm like the King Jesus gospel, not the individual salvation sure. gospel, like gospel of the King. Like I would want to rewrite the entire thing and of like course. do a kingdom but there's gospel, a version of theirs that is there's not. There's a version of the salvation yeah. gospel that at least won't damage people emotionally if they would revise it. So I please do it. I don't, I don't, I mean, I understand that there could be some hesitation, but consider my support in your corner. <laughs> Thank you. It needs to be said. Yeah. So, okay. So both LaHaye in the seventies and Dobson in the eighties were influenced by Bill Bright. And um, Dobson actually was a very close friend of his. And so you can see that anti-emotionalism influence in their work. So Tim LaHaye wrote the spirit controlled temperament, which is one of the few books I have ever actually thrown across the room. It's really bad. <laughs> really bad. He actually calls emotions sinful. He calls fear and anger sinful and selfish. He says they come from selfishness, which is bonkers. Like that is prime preparing people, grooming people for abuse kind of language. Mm-hmm. So that book is very disturbing. And, but now I understand where people in the eighties were getting the idea from that emotions are sinful. So then you get to Dobson and he, you know, has some psychological training. And so his book is like a softer, kinder version. And there are actually places I wrote in the margins. Okay. This is a good point. Like to give him credit where credit is due. He made some good points, but the book is really concerning on the whole. It feminizes emotion and it castigates women for being emotional, which is a huge, uh, like the gendering of emotion is a whole other topic we could talk about. Oh yeah. Yeah. But it is, Basically, you know, you can't trust your emotions is kind of the thesis of the book. So then you get into, and I, I, in, in my thesis, I have actual quotes with page numbers and like, it's from this edition of the book. This is actually Mm -hmm. what he said. And in both, both LaHaye and Dobson's books, they, they actually take their anti-emotionalism and they use it to keep women in abusive relationships. Like in both books, there's stories about women who are angry and distressed and upset because they're literally being abused and their emotionalism is seen as the problem instead of the abusive situation they're in as being the problem, right? Like these authors are sending them back into stay in these relationships with fathers or husbands who are abusing them. And like, they just need to keep a tighter rein on their emotions, which is 
infuriating for me as an advocate for survivors. But also the most interesting thing to me about LaHaye's book is that someone actually confronts him and says, your perspective is literally putting people in mental hospitals. Hmm. I think the guy was a chaplain in, in a, a, an institution. Yeah. And LaHaye like included that story as like a point of pride and disagreed with the guy. Oh, gosh. I'm like, he warned you that you were creating religious trauma in the 1970s before we even had a name for religious trauma. He warned you and you ignored him. And how many other people have suffered from complex post-traumatic stress disorder from spiritual abuse and religious trauma as a result from these kind of teachings? So it was, it was a mind-blowing I was just like gasping and screaming and like underlining things. And my husband actually came in to check on me, like, what's wrong? I'm like, this book is terrible. I mean, the, if you look into the theology and exegesis around the Left Behind books, the dude is not careful. It's not a careful system. He's a freewheeling sort of guy. He's not a good dude. He's not a good guy. It's sad. Yeah. And this book has been spread around the world, translated in multiple languages. Like I had a a student from Nigeria in a class I was teaching in the Netherlands who had encountered LaHaye's book and absorbed negative teaching about emotions there. Like, so it's, it's a global export from American Christianity, which makes me very sad. So then, you know, you move up to today where one example of it today is this anti-empathy movement in Calvinist circles. Hmm. Like empathy is bad. You should never empathize with people because you might actually be empathizing with people who are sinning and then like actually your empathy is encouraging them to sit. Which the whole thing is just. That that makes the bridge to the, the question I wanted to ask next, which I know your your training is not as much in theology, but I'm sure you have some thoughts on where this intersects with the idea of depravity, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, depravity being obviously a big deal in Calvinist circles, you know, in that world, we are sort of thoroughly depraved, totally depraved. That's the T in tulip in five point Calvinism. The idea being that there's nothing in us that can reach out to God for the for the true Calvinist or the for the five point Calvinist. I know that some Calvinists will say that is a misreading of Calvin, whatever. I'm not going to get in. I don't have a dog in that fight. But in the sort of str- strongest Calvinism we can't do anything to reach out toward God. Our nature is fully corrupted. And so anyone who becomes a Christian, anyone who does reach out to God, that has to be predetermined by God because we are incapable of it. We're so thoroughly corrupted. And then there are sort of softer versions of that in all sort of shades and hues that we pick up. You know, Baptist theology is is indebted to Calvin. It's not always five point Calvinism, you know, but a lot of evangelical theology descends in some sense from Calvin and includes some version of total depravity in various strengths, right? So do you see a connection between that theological construct and sort of what you've read and learned around the demonizing of emotions, the distrusting of emotions. Are those the vehicle of depravity? Are they the signpost of depravity? I mean, how would you, what kind of language would you use? That's a really good question. And I haven't asked myself that in those terms before. 
Um, well, we can, I guess we'll just riff about it live then yeah, together, okay. we can verbally process it. So the view that humans are so utterly bad, I think goes back to Gnosticism where the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And there's a body spirit duality, mm-hmm. which I don't think is healthy or holistic or Christian. Yeah. I think that our bodies, God created our bodies good and Jesus embodied humanity and Jesus retains his human body, right? Like he is still human. He still has human emotions as well as being divine and having divine emotion. So like a rejection of anything bodily or human as bad just doesn't square with my view of, of God's creation or God's incarnation. No, but I think that like castigating desire and castigating emotion is part of saying that humanity is bad, but we are not bad. We're redeemed, right? We, if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus actually ransomed you from evil and is victorious over evil. I mean, ransom and Christus Victor are two of my favorite atonement theories. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Like, Jesus is victorious over wickedness and evil and death and sin. And he gives us the power to overcome those things by the transformation of the Holy spirit. And the Holy spirit transforms us by the renewing of our minds. Right. And because emotion is cognitive, what the Holy spirit transforms and renews is also our emotion. And, and so emotion we can learn emotion concepts from Jesus and echo the emotions of God in our own lives to accomplish God's ends for God's kingdom. And that is a good thing. I mean, I, of course I agree with everything that you've said. I think that's the more accurate and certainly more like aware take on it all. And I think it's the more sort of theologically rich take. Let me, let me hazard sort of off the cuff here, an explanation for how a person might get to this idea that the emotions themselves are the evidence of the depravity. So if you're coming from that kind of a view and let's say you are a person with, you know, low to medium emotional awareness, and then you read in Paul, you know, I do the things I do not want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. And then you recognize in yourself, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I always go to sex because I am still an evangelical at my core. You know, a beautiful woman walks past or something and you you feel a pull toward her or whatever, you know, like you could you could understandably maybe make the connection that it's like, well, when I'm just reading my Bible, when I'm just sort of like thinking about the logical arguments, that's when I'm in a good spot. That's when I'm sort of like. And this is back to the noetic counseling idea of like, if I just believe enough, if I believe hard enough, the things I'm supposed to believe, then everything else will fall into place. What's getting in the way of me believing those things? Ah, all these feelings, all these desires. So that must be what Paul's talking about, that that's the stuff why I don't do the things I want to do. Now, that, of course, ignores the fact that there is good desire in that language in Paul, right? I'm, but this is sort of like a, it's a quick and dirty model, which is maybe not very good, very accurate, but that's kind of where my mind is going. What do you think about that? That sounds accurate. And it sounds like a reasonable, and I think even generous understanding of where people might be coming from with their anti-emotionalism. 
I think that it's an oversimplification to say there are two camps within the anti-emotion group, not that they're a group, but like there are people who are sincere to use Heather's word and they are afraid. And I I wrote in my thesis about like part of the anti-emotionalism actually comes from an emotion and that emotion is fear. I see Christian leaders afraid that the people they're leading, the people they pastorally care about will be led astray into sin. And they're afraid of that. And so they think that to keep people from sin, they need to keep people from emotion. And it's a misguided approach, but I can understand it as a pastor. Yeah. But then I, I, I know that there truly are people who shut down the emotions of the oppressed in order to keep them oppressed. These are people with spiritual power. And the only way they can keep that power is if people continue to ignore their emotions, ignore their instincts, ignore their intuition, ignore the sense that something isn't right and accept the mistreatment, the oppression and the spiritual abuse. Because if they ever feel the fury of God against oppressors, they will rise up and fight back against spiritual abuse and liberate themselves and others. And so I think there is both a sincere but misguided approach, and then there is a truly wicked and evil approach. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, let's maybe move towards our conclusion by having you kind of summarize what a better teaching on emotion mm. would be. Right. So like what's a healthier and you you talked about emotionally healthy spirituality, uh, that book, which is sort of part of a seeming like a good trend uh, in a lot of churches. But, you know, what's the kind of thing you'd hope that we would move toward? Mm -hmm. I've been using the term discipling our emotions Hmm. and I want to develop that idea more. But I think that just as we disciple every aspect of our lives to be more like Jesus, we also should disciple our emotions to be more like Jesus. And I always want to be really careful saying that because I don't want to say that the emotions that are not specifically Christ-like are bad. Our emotions are morally neutral. Right. You don't have bad emotions and good emotions. In fact, I don't use the term negative emotion ever. I call them uncomfortable emotions because we have to stop pathologizing emotion. So we have comfortable emotions and uncomfortable emotions. We have high arousal and low arousal. Like we feel it intensely or we, we feel like, mm-hmm. like lack of emotion or lack of emotional energy. And you can put it on a circumplex, which is another Barrett idea, like to chart our emotions on a circumplex. What is a circumplex for people who don't know what that is? Yeah. I, you, it's not video. So you can't see, but I put my arms like a cross. Uh-huh. And if you picture a line going Landscape, landscape, landscape across left to right, right from comfortable to uncomfortable left uh-huh. to right line. Right. And yeah. then you've got a line going portrait up and down that is high arousal, low arousal. Yeah. You can plot your emotions on that grid Yeah, where you're feeling a comfortable emotion intensely or less intensely. You're feeling right. an uncomfortable emotion intensely or less intensely. And so you can kind of plot your emotion on that grid, which is another helpful tool in addition to an emotion wheel. Yeah, for granularity. For it, but also tell us how you're experiencing it and how intense you're experiencing that. it. I love that. That's an, I might, yeah, I might have to steal that too. That's great. Okay. So that's, that's a, just a helpful tool, but so I don't want to pathologize emotions. So it's not to say that our unchristlike emotions are bad. It's just that money is morally neutral, but we disciple our use of money to make sure that we're in line with Jesus's priorities 
Yep. For caring for the poor, not hoarding wealth, etc. Yeah. And so in the same way, our emotions, we want to make sure that we are doing kingdom stuff with them as well as just doing human stuff. Like it's okay to just enjoy life and feel happy. That's, that's great. God created us with that capacity. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would say as you read the gospels and you learn new emotion concepts from Jesus, you're then able to construct them in yourself. Barrett says we're the architect of our own experience. We gain new concepts and then we can build them. And so if you want to grow in your compassion for the marginalized, look to Jesus and learn what that emotion concept looks like. And then you'll begin to feel it. Like once you've put it in your brain, it's going to come out. So the more we model our life like Jesus, the more we learn from his emotion concepts, I think the more we will disciple our emotions. And that is an approach that is, I think, scriptural. It follows the model for discipleship. It doesn't pathologize our emotions. And it is a way we can move toward both spiritual and emotional health as we mature. Incredible. Becky, thank you so much. What a fun and interesting uh, and wide ranging. It's wide ranging. Yeah. Conversation. It's it's got a it's got a nice core to it, though. Mm-hmm. Concentric circles, maybe. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot of stuff that are in the show notes here. We've got emotion wheel link. We've got links to the books, how emotions are made and faithful feelings. Anything of yours that you would also like to like me to include in the show notes? If people want to do a 24 week discipleship journey, I wrote a book with Scott McKnight called following King Jesus. And it's a workbook with journal exercises, creative group exercises, Bible study, and excerpts from some of Scott's books that walks you through what does it really look like to follow Jesus? Love it. Yeah. Uh, Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing the episode. You can become a patron and have access to two exclusive episodes per month at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. That link is also in the notes. And those patrons also get access to the Facebook group, which is patron only. Again, Becky, thank you so much for your time. 